Yahoo Sports has been a leader in fantasy sports for nearly two decades, and it's great to see that they recently introduced Fair Play for Daily Fantasy. Yahoo is helping to level the playing field for sports fans with strict contest entry limits and veteran labels for highly experienced players so you know who you're playing against. Yahoo Sports is offering our listeners a special offer. Go to the Yahoo Fantasy app or visit yahoo.com slash dailyfantasy and use promo code RINGER, that's R-I-N-G-E-R, with your next deposit to receive a one-time $50 deposit bonus that is earned over time as you play. Plus, first-time depositors will receive a $10 credit to enter new contests. So remember, that's promo code RINGER on Yahoo Sports Daily Fantasy. And before we begin, we have another sponsor to thank, Refuel with new Synergy Gasoline. Developed in the same ExxonMobil research lab as F1 Fuels, new Synergy Gasoline has been through and passed some of the most stringent tests ever developed, making it Exxon and Mobil's most tested fuel ever. Synergy Gasoline is engineered with seven key ingredients, including dual detergents to help keep your engine cleaner. New Synergy Gasoline, only available at Exxon and Mobil. Energy lives here. Visit exxon.com, that's E-X-X-O-N.com, or mobile.com, M-O-B-I-L.com, for more information. Hello and welcome to The Ringer MLB Show. I am Ben Lindbergh, a staff writer for TheRinger.com, joined by fellow Ringer writer Michael Bauman. Hey, Michael. Hello. I have some uh, some business to take care of before we get into the trade deadline. Please, dispense so, with the business. Uh, Deadspin, I don't know if you saw this today, came out with a sports radio talk show generator. No, didn't see it. So you, you punch the your own name and the name of your co-host and your radio station call letters. Okay. And, and, it, and it submits to you a show name. So for us, for Mike and Ben on KRNG, your sports talk radio show is Icky and the Swine on 730, The Sports Annihilation. And I was wondering, I was wondering if you wanted to change the name of the show from Ringer MLB to Icky and the Swine. I mean, I don't know that we can do that unilaterally, I but guess we could true. certainly run it up the chain, see what people think. I feel like I should have some drive time radio sound effects ready to go, but I don't. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there you go. So this is a special trade deadline edition. It's really the third trade deadline edition of this podcast in a row, but this is the first one that has come after the trade deadline. It was a day of turmoil, tons of trades going down in Major League Baseball, Bachelorette finale. We're only going to talk about the trades because there's a whole podcast devoted to the Bachelorette, but there was no shortage of action. Of course, as always, GMs, I don't know whether you'd want to say it's procrastinated or just wisely used all the time available to them and took it down to the last 15 minutes or so of the deadline, even though this year's deadline was a day later than usual. And a bunch of trades happened in that last hour or so. The Rangers made a bunch of moves. The Dodgers made a big move. Some teams that were expected to make moves did not make moves. We've already written up a bunch of them. You've written your trade deadline winners and losers post, which is up at the ringer right now. And That served as pretty good prep for the podcast. So I guess we can start with some of the winners, right? We could start on a positive note. Anywhere in particular you'd care to begin? Well, let's let's get Jonathan Lucroy out of the way because (laughs) you've written about him like three times (laughs) in the past five days. And I wrote about him when I thought he was going to be traded to Cleveland and that that got scrapped. So and I wrote about him today. So I I really like this trade for the Rangers. Because uh, I think that Luke Roy is the best player who got moved at the deadline. I think uh, getting a player like him who could be like a 5-1 player uh, at middle reliever money for not only this playoff run, for but for next year's playoff run and to do it without giving up Joey Gallo, Nomar Mazzara, or Jerickson Profar is, uh, it might be the most impactful move 
those made at this deadline. Yeah, it's really surprising that that happened because Joey Gallo's name was mentioned in some of the initial reports and everyone figured, yeah, of course, Joey Gallo would be in this move. That's the guy you have to give up if you want to get good players. And the Rangers didn't do that. So they acquired Jonathan Lucroy and Jeremy Jeffress from the Brewers in one trade. And then shortly before completing that trade, also brought in Carlos Beltran from the Yankees. And they did give up good prospects in these moves. They gave up their fourth overall pick from last year, Dylan Tate, in the Carlos Beltran trade, who has fallen on some hard times. He's lost some velocity. He's had some not-so-impressive stats in A-ball this year, and so the Yankees get to pick him up for a 39-year-old DH who will be a free agent in a few months. And in the move with the Brewers... I agree. The Rangers got the best player available at the deadline, and they also got a quality closer who they will add to a bullpen that has been shaky at times this season, although it's solidified lately. And as you mentioned, didn't give up Gallo, didn't give up Mazzara, didn't give up Profar. That is an impressive slate of hand. Yeah, that the bullpen thing is really interesting to me because you wouldn't think like I've sort of got in my mind this mental image of the Rangers actually having a pretty decent bullpen with like, um, you know, Dyson and Barnett and Diekman and Bush are all putting up pretty good uh, run prevention numbers. But like, I didn't realize how bad the strikeout numbers were until I read your uh, Lucroy trade recap. Like they had the lowest strikeout rate and in baseball. So, yeah. you know, Jeffress is also not a guy who strikes out a ton of batters. I mean, he's sort of like Dyson in that regard, but yeah, th- I mean, you you'd see them like they've they've been good, but they've also blown a lot of leads. It's the, like the aggregate numbers are good, but there are also like conspicuous blown saves. So, I guess Jeffress if nothing else sort of helps that psychically. He's putting, you know, just throwing another body at that problem. Yeah, and I think your instinct that those guys are actually pretty good is probably accurate, actually. I think the season-long numbers for the Rangers bullpen don't look so great, but if you focus on the players who are actually in the Rangers bullpen right now, I think it looks a lot more positive because they had some guys like Tom Wilhelmson and Sean Tolleson and Cesar Ramos kind of blowing up their stats and those still count toward the full season stats, but those guys are not actually on the Rangers right now. And they have a bunch of depth there. It's not just Jeffers and Dyson, who has been the incumbent closer and has pitched the second most games in the majors since the start of last season, but they also have this deep bench, or I guess you could say deep bullpen, <laughs> of relievers. Jake Diekman, you mentioned, Matt Bush, Tony Barnett, Keone Kayla is reactivated from the DL. They just traded for Dario Alvarez from the Braves, a lefty who has impressive stats this year. And I think just the sheer number of pretty good relievers there, there's no Andrew Miller or Roldis Chapman in that bunch, but all those guys are pretty good. And I think if you put all of them together it helps paper over the Rangers' one weakness, which everyone mentioned even in the aftermath of these trades. They still don't have a great rotation. It's Hugh Darvish, who's now back from the DL and looking pretty good, Cole Hamels, and then a bunch of guys, and they're just trying to piece that together. But since they have you know seven or eight relievers who are all pretty decent, you at least have the option of bringing those guys in when someone in the back of the Rangers' rotation goes four. Yeah, that's a... The rotation, like, they, they probably should have done something about that. But, you know, you look at uh, Martin Perez, like, Perez walks almost as many guys as he strikes out, and he strikes out 
I think it's 4.3 per nine innings, which it just shouldn't be sustainable in this no. day and age. But he's got like a league average ERA, which is just staggering to me. But yeah, that's I don't. The thing about the bullpen is, is it's probably got to be good enough to carry the freight for either Perez or Griffin getting knocked out of game three or four of a playoff series. And I don't know that it's there yet. Yeah. And it's just such a confusing team. And I, I was just, you know, studying their stats, trying to figure out why is they were as good as they were when they made these moves as I was writing my piece. Cause you know, they entered the deadline 62 and 44. They had the third best record in the majors. And if you just kind of look at the component parts of the team, it doesn't seem like that adds up to 62 and 44. They, as we mentioned, bullpen, not so great. If you look at the full season stats, the rotation is weak. They lost a bunch of guys to injury. And then they have, you know, a bunch of like Mitch Moreland type people who are just sort of there and Ryan Rua and guys who are not, you know, awful, but not a lot of standouts in that lineup, really the the best hitter on the team before they traded for Beltron was Ian Desmond. Yeah. And he's not exactly a superstar, although he's exceeded expectations. So it's weird when you look at them, like their their run differential was plus nine, even though they were, you know, eighteen games over five hundred. And that doesn't seem like something that should be sustainable. They've been very clutch, both on offense and on defense or on the mound. So I think they needed to do something. I think they recognized that they were not really as good as this record and that, you know, they even ran a real risk of being overtaken by the Astros if they stood pat and if the Astros did something, which as it turned out, they didn't. Yeah. I wonder if there's something to the fact that the Rangers are sort of an okay offensive team on the aggregate, but it's because they've got like 12 or 13 average hitters or guys who are hitting like average hitters, Mm -hmm. like whether they can play matchups a little bit better or there's just, there aren't any easy outs on the team. I mean, particularly now with Beltran and Lucroy in the mix, like they've, they just, you know, they can go 13 or 14 deep with like actually good hitters. So yeah, I don't, I don't know if it just means if you've got that many competent hitters, one of them's going to be hot all the time, but I guess we need some, some data that I don't have offhand to, to draw conclusions about that. Yeah. And, you know, for people who haven't read our eight articles about Jonathan Lucroy, he is, you know, probably the second best catcher in baseball behind Buster Posey. I think we both agree on that, unless you think that Wilson Ramos's laser eyes have really made him into a a superstar. Lucroy is about the best there is otherwise. He is not quite the pitch receiver that he was a few years ago, but his bat has bounced back after sort of a, a down injury year in 2015. And, He's been good for quite a while now, and, you know, because he's been playing in Milwaukee and because a lot of his skills behind the plate maybe were not widely recognized, I think he went under the radar a little bit, but he really has been very good for a very long time, and he's a huge upgrade for the Rangers, who probably had gotten more than they could have expected out of the guys they were actually playing at catcher, but going forward, they were basically looking at replacement-level production from that position, and they've gone from that to best behind Buster Posey. Mm -hmm. So I don't know whether, you know, I, I wrote after the Indians traded for Andrew Miller on the weekend, I anointed them as the AL team to beat, which I probably would have said before the Andrew Andrew Miller trade, and Some people were asking me on Twitter if I still stood by that after the flurry of Rangers moves, and 
I think I would. I think I still believe that the Indians are the best team in the league, but the Rangers have closed the gap. They've closed the gap between their real record and what their underlying stats say their record should have been, and they've closed the gap between them and the Indians or, or whomever you think the best AL team is. Yeah, I think, I mean, with the, the run differential numbers, like it just sort of, like the Rangers look like, like to me, they look like last year's Blue Jays, but they're, you know, still a couple starting pitchers short. They still have kind of a shaky bullpen and the lineup has a lot of big names and a lot of guys who are playing well, but the, it doesn't have somebody like David Ortiz in it or, um, or even someone who's hitting like, uh, like Jackie Bradley. So I think that the Rangers and the, you know, I, I like this Red Sox team a lot, even though I think that they were one, one more big move away from, uh, joining the Indians. So I would put the Indians first and the Rangers and the Red Sox just behind them. Yeah. And it was a quiet day on the buy side for the AL East teams, but a, a very loud day for an unfamiliar seller in the AL East who, was at the top of your trade deadline winner's post. So let's talk about the amazing fire sale New York Yankees. Yeah. The, so the interesting thing, I've, I've been thinking about this with Brian Cashman for, for a long, long time now. It's for a while, people thought that he was sort of overrated as a GM because he had the, because he inherited Jeter, Pettit, Rivera, Posada and, uh, and Bernie Williams and had that huge payroll to work with. But like, I've wondered, I've wondered if he's actually been underrated as a GM because of all the ownership weirdness that he's had to deal with. And he's just sort of quietly kept that machine moving for 20 years. And this is the first time that he's actually had to sell. And I don't know if it's just he anticipated that bonkers market for relief pitching and had the two best relievers available, but he got a huge return for three players that he really didn't have any need for if that team wasn't going to contend this year. So, I mean, that's MLB.com. Uh, moved the Yankees up to number one in their farm system rankings, but, you know, pretty much overnight, the bulk of that, uh, the top of that system wasn't there a week ago. So, you know, I think this is a testament to the idea that maybe Brian Cashman is a better GM than, I don't think anybody thinks he's a bad GM, but like he, he doesn't make those, those flashy look at me, like, look how clever I am moves. And this is one of the first times he's done that. Yeah, it was just really hard to judge what he was before because of the unique circumstances he found himself in, as you said, inheriting a dynasty team and then having all of the big market advantages that the Yankees confer. And, you know, when he would have success, well, then it was the players that were there when he got there or the players that he just spent tons and tons of money on, which, you know, people say, well, anyone could have spent that much money on this guy. I think there's certainly something to be said for the fact that he has survived this long in that job in New York with Steinbrenner ownership to have been the GM now for almost 20 years and to have been in the organization for 30 is really impressive. And, you know, he's not just a, a yes man. Like he's, he's one of the more frank GMs, I think, even especially in recent years, he will say things to the press that other GMs generally won't say. And I always enjoy that. I think he's kind of felt his oats a bit since several years back. He he kind of made a bit more of a power grab and, and solidified his status in that front office. But it has always been hard to evaluate him because it seemed like he wanted to kind of do a youth movement before or, you know, maybe not do a full rebuild, but 
at least not keep sticking to that Yankees plan of continuing to sign free agents and trade whatever prospects they've managed to get their hands on. But it kept getting derailed by something, you know, the, the A-Rod contract or Teixeira or, you know, McCann or Tanaka. And it was never clear whether that was something he wanted to do or, you know, at various times it was, oh, well, that was a Randy Levine move or that was a Steinbrenner move. And that was over Cashman's objection. So this time, for whatever reason, I guess he managed to sell those people on actually losing for half a season. And I don't know what it was that changed their mind that that let them give him the okay to actually deal these veterans for once. But I'm sure he's feeling pretty proud of himself, both for talking them into it and then for really getting the greatest return you could expect. Yeah. And, you know, there there were a couple. I think the, the perception was that, that this was Hal sort of not wanting to, to wave the white flag, whether that's we, you know, we want to give off the impression that we're winning so we continue continue to sell tickets or or some stubbornness about, you know, we're the Yankees, we don't sell. But this was absolutely the right move. And even if it does tank attendance and interest, which I don't think it will for 60 games, like this is going to that's going to repay itself tenfold, a hundredfold in the in the years to come. Yeah, I agree. And I mean, there are probably some Yankees fans who just don't know how to process what has happened to this team over the last week. I've I've seen them in comment sections. It must been... be so terrible for them that they don't know how to process a really savvy <laughs> rebuild after 25 years of nonstop winning. Yeah, no one's heart is breaking. This is why them, nobody but... likes Yankees fans. <laughs> But put themselves in their place. There are many Yankees fans who are conditioned to the team always winning and always going for it. And you and I and, you know, internet baseball analysts and people who root for teams that actually lose sometimes recognize the value of trading your veterans, getting prospects, building up again. And there are a lot of Yankees fans who have never seen the Yankees do this, and they don't know how this works. I, I've seen comments as I've been browsing various news stories that basically say, you know, what what are we doing? What happened? We, we gave up the best bullpen in the majors. We gave up our best hitter, and we didn't get any major leaguers back. And, you know. Well, they got Adam Warren. Well, pretty... <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> they really missed Adam Warren. But, you know, you and I, like, we, we might look at the stuff. Studies that say, well, uh, a prospect that's ranked number 30 on the Baseball America list is generally worth X millions of dollars or, you know, X wins a pub replacement player over the first six years of team control or something. And those are real assets. And you learn to treat them as real assets, even though you maybe have never actually laid eyes on them. Whereas for the casual fan who watches the game every night and likes seeing Rollis Chapman and Andrew Miller blow everyone away, and then you tell them, well, we got this 20-year-old who's in A-ball, and he might be really good someday. That's, you know, it's a, mm -hmm. it's a tough sell to some people, but I think that is probably behind the reluctance to sell, to rebuild. There's this perception that you can't do that if you're the Yankees, if you're in New York, the fans won't stand for it, and I've never really believed that that's the case. I'm, I'm sure that you know, if it culminates in the Yankees being great again in a few years, and the last time the Yankees had one of the best farm systems in baseball, we know what happened. Right. So it's sort of a scary prospect for everyone else to have unleashed Brian Cashman sitting on maybe the best farm system in baseball with contracts coming off the books next year, A-Rod, Teixeira, and then the big 2018 free agent class coming up when various high-profile players will be available to the Yankees. So 
I mean, this is the same sort of thing that we've said about the Dodgers in the last few years where they've had the highest payroll and also the best farm system and maybe the smartest front office and, and all of that. And, you know, it hasn't necessarily turned them into the, the juggernaut that all of those things would lead you to believe they should be. But it's pretty scary for the rest of the league to have the Yankees able to spend and also able to hoard some prospects for once. Yeah. Let's get to the Dodgers before it gets too late into this. Cause I wrote the, sure. I wrote up the Rich Hill, Josh Reddick trade well before perhaps the most interesting thing that happened today, which is <laughs> Yasiel Puig getting left off the team plane and, yeah. uh, and sent home. So, um, just quickly on the, on the trade, you can go read the piece. I think it's, I think it's a, a good get at a steep price for the Dodgers, particularly if they were, uh, if they needed a pretext to to bench or demote or trade Puig, then Josh Reddick is a perfectly fine, competent, average-ish uh, right fielder. Rich Hill, if he ever gets rid of that blister, is probably the only guy who can come close to, at least for a couple months, approximating uh, Clayton Kershaw. You know, if Kershaw doesn't come back from that back injury and if, you know, but, you know, the joke is the Dodgers already have way too many injury-prone starters, and nobody's more injury-prone than Rich Hill. So, you know, it's not a, a perfect deal, but that's the deal you have to make if you want to hold on to Julio Urias and Jose De Leon and still make an impact move. Um, and speaking of impact moves, I have we seen anything like – I mean, like, I guess if we just take the story at face value, it's – Puig got sent home because he told he he was told he was going to get either demoted or traded, and right. that was it. But the juxtaposition with the team flight and it being Puig somehow makes this hilarious and ridiculous. But I guess like the more I think about it, is it that hilarious and ridiculous? It's sad in a way. I mean, yeah, you know, I, I think there is always a, an element of over the topness to these behind the scenes Puig stories and. You know, in Molly Knight's book, there's plenty of stories. We've heard many of them come out over the last couple of years. And so you could just add this to the list. But, of course, you know, Puig was really, really fun when he came up and was great for a couple of years. And there was no real reason to think that he would stop being great. You know, there were always behavioral issues, and it was never clear how much of that was just media-driven and how much of it was actually justified. But... No one could argue about the fact that he was one of the best players in baseball. And so to see him head downhill as he has is disappointing. Although, you know, I'll, I'll say that the, the timing of this is somewhat strange, right? Because, I mean, he is having a down year, another down year. And if you look at the full season stats, you could certainly justify making a change. But, you know, since he came off the DL with the hamstring. Yeah, he's been pretty good. Yeah, June 21st, he came off, so he's played 28 games since then, started 23, has just over 100 plate appearances, and he's hitting 308, 390 on base, and 440 slugging, which is, you know, almost Puig-esque. So I don't know whether there was anything else going on behind the scenes here, or whether the Dodgers had reason to believe that he wouldn't sustain that, but it's odd timing if you're going to demote this guy who is either a big part of your franchise's future or someone you're going to want to trade and get the most that you can for him, why demote him now when he is at least showing some signs of being something closer to what he was in the past? Yeah, I wonder if they were just relatively certain they'd get a taker for him and just nothing they wanted to do panned out or if there was yeah. something that some incident 
But yeah, what it comes like, you know, I always love, I think you and I both to a certain extent are, are sort of like, we like when sort of the old stodgy, you know, conservative old guard gets its face rubbed in it a little bit. And Puig for about two years was the walking embodiment of that. Right. Um, and he brought, you know, he brought out just the worst takes, which were, I mean, it was just so gratifying to, to watch him succeed. And, but, you know, with Molly Knight's book coming out, you know, we start to hear that, you know, maybe his teammates actually don't like him either. And, you know, this is something that as football season comes around, I've been hearing a lot of, of, of this talk you know, with regards to, to coaching changes and stuff and, and football coaches with strong personalities or a, an idiosyncratic way of doing this. And sort of what I've been gleaning from all that is if you win, if you win enough, it doesn't matter how you act. And if you lose enough, it doesn't matter how you act. But in the middle, like if you're not winning all the time and everybody hates you, then they're going to get rid of you. Like the moment that you stop winning, uh, if nobody likes you, then then you're expendable. And I wonder if that's just if we just reached a, a certain point where the production wasn't worth the bullshit. And yeah, I mean, there's a long history of players who teams put up with as as long as they put up the stats. And then as soon as the stats stopped, then the, the tolerance ended, too. But I, I mean, want to go back just for a second to the, the statement you made about Rich Hill and Clayton Kershaw because it is an accurate statement and it's still shocking to hear it. And yeah. you've written about Rich Hill recently. I've talked about Rich Hill in other places at length, but I never tire of it. And as Sam Miller has pointed out, today is the one-year anniversary mm-hmm. of Rich Hill's first start for the Long Island Ducks last year and that kicked off this whole renaissance which is just mind-boggling that you could say (laughs) right now that rich hill is your best chance to replace clayton kershaw which is true you know billy bean said as much uh, last month he he said that rich hill was the best player in the american league or best pitcher in the american league and of course billy bean had incentive to pump up hill's value he was probably going to trade him but (laughs) on a per start basis you know per start (laughs) basis he's he's not wrong yeah i mean yeah he's not the guy you would count on if you want to have someone in there making a start every fifth day and you want to know you can count on that he doesn't have a track record of throwing a lot of innings and even this year of course he's dealt with nagging issues that have sidelined him for some time but Start for start, there has really been no one better. And yeah. so, and, you know, until the Dodgers get Clayton Kershaw back, if they get Clayton Kershaw back, this was their best chance of approximating his production on a, a weak market for starting pitchers. Two things uh, about Hill. One, I find it interesting that, I mean, he's had the groin problem in the first half of the season and the blister now. And to my knowledge, he hasn't had any of either of those injuries before in his career. And I think it's amazing that this late in his career, after all that he's been through, he's still finding new injuries to suffer. <laughs> like there are parts of his body that were unscathed before. Yeah. And the, the second thing is uh, – when I went and talked to him for the story, he brought up like the, you know, the now sort of the Disney movie version is he had this one conversation when he was with the Red Sox last year with Brian Bannister about pitching off of his curveball and adding and subtracting from pitches. And the example Bannister used was Clayton Kershaw with his curveball. And uh, in the course of that conversation, Hill kept coming back to, well, Clayton Kershaw does this and Clayton Kershaw does it that way. So I tried to do it that way and it worked. And I think it's it's cool that he, he went to the Dodgers specifically 
because that sort of brings the whole thing full circle. And maybe, you know, it's cool also that Hill is, is taking pointers from, or maybe not directly taking pointers, but drawing inspiration from a pitcher who's eight years younger than he is too. Which, you know. <laughs> right. Yeah. I guess Clayton Kershaw is now graduated to that Roy Halladay class where everyone just copies him like yeah. whether it's you know charlie morton yeah, the charlie morton thing yeah. literally modeling himself after roy halliday to the degree that you could barely tell their deliveries apart but yeah kershaw is now in that class and hopefully he will be back solidifying that reputation sometime soon that sucks we're not like i know i know you and sam talked about this on effectively wild but like mm-hmm. we don't deserve uh, maybe as a society we do deserve Clayton Kershaw getting a backyotomy, but right. like, as you know, baseball needs a healthy Clayton Kershaw. Agreed. And before we move on to other contending teams, I just wanted to quickly shout out the Brewers since we were applauding the Yankees on their rebuilding. The the Brewers really did the same sort of job. The Yankees and the Brewers now are the two teams that have seven of the Baseball America midseason top one hundred prospects. So between them they have fourteen of the one hundred. It's not quite as surprising that the Brewers did that. We always knew that was the Brewers' plan, but they have really just in the, what, uh, not even a year, eight, nine months, ten months or so since David Stearns took over, they have really just kind of remade their entire 40-man roster from from top to bottom, basically. Two things on the the Brewers real quick that I'm glad you brought that up. One is, I mean, that the Will Smith deal was... Just yeah. unbelievable. They got, I mean, both Susak and, uh, Bickford, neither of them are, I guess, have the same, same juice that they did maybe a year ago. Bickford in particular's velocity has been down. He hasn't really been the same since, um, since leaving Cal State Fullerton. But I mean, that's still a huge haul. That's a guy you can plug into the starting lineup and a guy who was a first round pick twice, uh, and pitched in the futures game this year. And the, they sort of backed into, into a pretty good deal after Lucroy nicks the deal to Cleveland. Cause I think this deal from the, the package I got from Texas is better than the original offer uh, from Cleveland. And mm-hmm. it's similar. It's a similar deal to Cole Hamels last year in two ways. One in that Hamels vetoed a trade to the Astros before he went to the Rangers, but also last year, the Phillies were after one of Mazzara or Gallo um, and didn't get him. But the, the Rangers had enough depth. They said, well, we, we're not going to give you a top 10 prospect, but we can give you two top 50 prospects or in the Phillies case, three top 50 prospects for, for your one guy. So if, you know, Brinson and, and uh, Ortiz, neither of them individually has as, uh, as much juice as Gal or as much upside, but that's, it's still, I mean, it's not the whole I would have expected for Lucroy, but it's not bad. Yeah. And for anyone who's wondering what went on with the Lucroy to Cleveland false alarm, the, the deal was that he had a partial no trade clause he had eight teams on it and and the indians were one of them and so he could block that trade to cleveland and so he wielded that leverage to try to get the indians to tear up his 2017 option which is extremely team friendly that the rangers now will be able to exercise that option and have jonathan lucroy for five and a quarter million dollars next year when he's a guy who you know if you were to sign him to a a one-year deal on the free agent market might be making 20 maybe more i think at least 25 yeah yeah so he, he had all the reason in the world to try to apply some pressure and get cleveland to to void that option for him but 
You can also understand why they wouldn't want to do that because they wouldn't want to give up all the prospects that they would have had to give up mm -hmm. in order to get a guy for three months. So it was understandable on both sides, but the outcome for Lucroy was kind of bad either way because either he was going to end up staying in Milwaukee and playing for a losing team for the rest of the season or he was going to end up getting traded to a, a different contending team and still being stuck with that option for the next year. But at least he gets to play for a winner, which is what he originally claimed to want. But he, you know, a lot of people were dumping on Luke Roy for vetoing the trade, saying he didn't want to win or he hates Cleveland. I think the my biggest question about Luke Roy, you know, he's, he's within his rights to do whatever he wants, but there's a gourmet grilled cheese chain in <laughs> Cleveland called Melt. Uh -huh. That I I just really hope that Lou Croy was aware of the existence of a place where you could get pierogies on grilled cheese before he decided not to live in that city. Like yeah. you know, I I think Dallas is fine. I've been to Dallas a few times, and you know they've got a couple nice neighborhoods, but they don't have melt in Dallas. And uh, you know, I wonder if Lou Croy is going to come to regret that decision. You're in Texas right now, and you're speaking up for Cleveland. That's touching. You really I used to live in Ohio. I liked it a lot better in Ohio. Truth be told. Yeah. Well, the Ringers Cleveland week. Failed to persuade Lucre that that was yeah. The that's really a go. slap in the face to us. <laughs> it really is. All right. So where do we go next? Anyone else you want to touch on on the the winners bracket? Oh, we're still on the winners bracket. <laughs> we um, are. Wow. Okay. We're positive uh, people. Yeah. I. I mean, I've wrote about Matt Moore. I think that's a a good situation for him to go to with the the Giants and Dave Rigetti and that and that ballpark and that defense. I think that he's another guy who's been heating up the last couple of weeks and he might be returning to his original form, but that's really all I've got to say on that. Mm -hmm. So we can go to the losers if you want, unless all you've right. got somebody else you want to talk about. I don't think so. I think we've covered most of the, the big moves that really made a difference in a, in a positive way. You, you wouldn't put the Giants in the winner's category for getting Smith and more. I think they gave up a lot to get Smith and mm -hmm. yeah, you mentioned you know yeah. Bickford and Susak kind of they've lost a little luster yeah. since last season, but so had Smith. Mm -hmm. Smith, a lot of people thought the Brewers had held on to Smith too long. Mm -hmm. And the more I, the more I look at the more trade, the more I like it for San Francisco. But I think that's a, I think they probably paid around sticker price for for him. Lucius Fox is a, a good prospect, and you know Matt Duffy. You know maybe if they were um, clear in room um, in the infield, they've done okay without Duffy so far, but. Yeah, it's it's still it's still a lot of freight for for Matt Moore. I don't hate the trade. You know, the, most of these trades I can at least see both sides. I think we're beyond the the point where teams make a trade and you immediately point to one side and say those guys got screwed, with the exception of um, Jay Bruce to the Mets. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was going to say unless the Diamondbacks are involved. But yeah. Oh, yeah. They, <laughs> also, <laughs> I should have put the Diamondbacks on on the winners bracket for like they just. Yeah, they didn't do the Tuki Tucson trade again. Yeah, they didn't do anything dumb, so that's a win. All right, before we move on to the second half of this episode, let's pause for a minute to say a few words about our sponsors, one of which is Exxon, which is introducing new Synergy Gasoline, Exxon and Mobile's most tested fuel ever. It's been through and passed some of the most stringent tests ever developed. Developed in the same Exxon Mobile research lab as their F1 fuels, new Synergy Gasoline is engineered by chemists who understand the science behind keeping engines clean and know the complexities of modern car technology. That's why it's formulated to keep modern fuel injectors clean while still working great on older engines. New Synergy is also engineered with seven key ingredients, each with their own unique function to help make Synergy Exxon and Mobil's best fuel ever, including dual detergents to help clean your engine and corrosion inhibitor designed to help prevent rust from threatening your engine and its performance. Refuel with New Synergy gasoline today. Only available at the almost 11,000 Exxon and Mobil stations across the U.S., 
energy lives here. Visit exxon.com, that's E-X-X-O-N.com, or mobile.com, M-O-B-I-L.com for more information. We also want to thank MeUndies. Whether you're wearing a suit or sweats, and for me, sweats are much more likely, you spend almost 24 hours a day in your underwear. But instead of making a statement like Superman's tights under his everyday clothes, your underwear is probably boring. MeUndies is here to change that. Every pair of MeUndies is made from sustainably sourced modal, a fabric that's twice as soft as cotton. Nothing can describe the fit and feel of MeUndies, but once you try them on, you'll understand why they're called the world's most comfortable underwear. If you don't love your first pair of MeUndies, they're free. No questions asked. MeUndies has dozens of styles and limited edition prints to help you make a statement with your underwear, whether anyone can see them or not. Remember, Superman. Shipping is free in the U.S. and Canada, and you can save up to $8 a pair with the MeUndies subscription plan. Get the subscription or a single pair and get 20% off your first order when you go to MeUndies.com slash MLB show. That's MeUndies.com slash MLB show for 20% off your first order. One more time, that's MeUndies.com slash MLB S-H-O-W. Okay, so let's pick up where we left off. The last winner that you included in your piece was the Nationals, not so much because they did anything transformative. They signed Mark Melanson, who's a, a good late-inning reliever, and they didn't pay Chapman prices for him. So that's smart. But part of the fact that they were a winner was that they already had the lead in the NL East, and their main rivals in the division didn't do anything to close that gap. And in fact, one of them is a top-year losers list. So let's head there. Yeah. So I just, like, I don't understand why the Mets want Jay Bruce. And he's a I mean, he's a corner outfielder who, I mean, I hesitate to say he can't play center because Michael Conforto's played center and Jonas Cespedes has played center. Right. So obviously the Mets define that term differently than I do. But they've, like, this is a team on a limited payroll. And between Bruce and Granderson and Cespedes, they've got, just doing the math in my head, something like $55 million plus Alejandro de Azza over another $5 million plus a top 10 pick in Conforto tied up in two positions and they can only play two of those guys. I mean, they should only play two of those guys at a time. And they went out and, you know, they, the original trade was a lot worse uh, with Brandon Nemo going the other way instead of Dilson Herrera. I think Herrera's taken us, maybe taken a step back since last season, but like they just, they needed, the Mets are fine, but if they're going to make a move to, to catch the Nationals, then they needed to upgrade. You know, maybe they needed to go get Luke Roy or they needed to get oh, a third baseman who's better than Jose Reyes or an actual center fielder. And they didn't do any of that. And instead, they reinforced their greatest position of strength with a guy who's not as good as Cespedes and maybe as good as Granderson and Conforto. But Conforto's still got the potential to improve and he's much cheaper. And now you're spending $13 million on Jay Bruce and... I just the odds of a an okay low OBP high power corner outfielder turning into the best center fielder in baseball apart from Mike Trout two years in a row is right. just like I I would bet against that happening. Yeah, right. And you can sort of squint and see why they wanted Jay Bruce. I mean, they they need a hitter. He is a hitter. He's a it's a pretty good hitter. Other than Carlos Beltran, I suppose, who's not someone that you would want in the field every day. He was probably neither is Jay Bruce. For no, me. neither is Jay Bruce. Yeah, Jay Bruce's defense is sort of a contentious subject because yeah. he was at one time a very good defender and he had the stats to back it up. And you still see various evaluators and anonymously quoted scouts saying that he's better than the stats give him credit for. But the stats have been very, very poor. Yeah. And uh, 
August Fagerstrom, I think it was at Fangrass, did a, a post not long ago digging into his defense and sort of found that you could really draw a line between Bruce pre-knee surgery and Bruce post-knee surgery. And that's really when the, the stats tanked and even the eye test kind of confirms them if you if you look hard enough. So it seems as if those stats are, are more or less accurately reflecting who he is in the field. And so, yeah, I mean, the Mets needed offense, but this was not a particularly efficient way to add that offense. I mean, he he makes them better against righties, which is something they needed. And, you know, their defense was already bad. So I guess he just makes it even worse. And they are a team that strikes out a lot of hitters and, and doesn't allow that many balls in play. So maybe it hurts them a little less than it would some other team, but it's it's still not, it's, you know, I think Bruce is probably worth less than people who are looking at his offensive stats would assume once you factor in that defense, it really saps the value he adds at the plate. And when you're putting him on the Mets where the, the puzzle pieces don't fit very well, it's yeah. not a, a huge upgrade. And that's the, the like, it's very Mets specific because I don't think what they gave up is at all out of line for a player like Bruce who... yeah. You know, he's, he's still slugging something like 560 and, right. you know, he's, he's a valuable offensive player if you can find a, a place to put him, but maybe nobody needs corner outfielders less relative to the needs of the rest of the team than the Mets do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, with their artificially limited payroll, you know, this is a, another opportunity for me to crap on the Wilpons, but, you know, this, they can spend that $13 million next year elsewhere and do a lot more to improve their team. I just, I don't understand any any bit of this trade. All right. Another loser was a, a division mate of the Mets who made no trades. And yeah. That was what perplexed you. Yeah. I think the, you know, if the if the package wasn't there or not even package, like you, you get one decent prospect back for, for Jeremy Hellickson. The the guy who they gave up to get Hellickson was Sam McWilliams, who's a, a skinny teenager who's like a back end of their organizational top 30 type guy, you know, a guy who's playing in, in complex leagues. And essentially the Phillies pretty much got Hellickson for free if you can pay his salary. And Hellickson's been pretty good. He's had a 110 ERA plus and, you know, even that kind of pitcher would be valuable to the Marlins or the Orioles or the Rangers or uh, before the more trade, maybe even the Giants. Just like since the, the 2011 Red Sox, you know, you'll see teams miss the playoffs for want of just a mediocre major league starting pitcher. And I think that's what Hellickson is. And when closers are going for what Chapman went for, what um, what Miller went for, maybe the Phillies had an elevated expectation of what they were going to get. Um, they were speaking to Joey Gallo. They were rumored to be negotiating with the Rangers to send Vincent Velasquez down there. And, you know, they've got other guys in there. You know, Hector Neris in the, the middle of their bullpen could have been an attractive, um, attractive trade target. Like they had a lot of guys who they signed at the beginning of this year thinking, or who you could obviously think about, you know, let's see where they are in four months and flip them in the deadline. They didn't move anybody. So, you know, it's not the, it's not the end of the world. Cause honestly, I didn't think they were going to get anything for Hellickson at the start of the season. Cause I didn't think he'd be that good, but, and now, but they're in sort of an awkward position, um, with, uh, whether they extend him a qualifying offer at the end of the year and what that, you know, what that does to him, you know, you wonder whether that's going to depress his salary. Like Giovanni Gallardo's got depressed, uh, last year because of the the qualifying offer. So it, you know, puts Hellickson in an awkward position, which makes him personally a loser. But, you know, I just, 
I wonder what moves the Phillies didn't make. And I guess that's the the only way that we'll be able to, to truly evaluate uh, a team's inaction is, you know, if they legitimately didn't get get offered anything worth trading for, then I guess that's not on them. But, you know, you would have expected them to, to be a little more active at the deadline. Right. And their GM, Matt Clintock, said we had offers out to other teams that if accepted, we would have done. At the end of the day, there was nothing we felt made sense for the organization at this time. And maybe for you, that conjures bad memories of Ruben Amaro putting way too high a price tag on all of his players. Now, I was I was with Amaro 100% throughout okay. the, the Cole Hamels deal. And, you know, uh-huh. look what they got. He yeah, was sure, right. That history history vindicated. I can't believe 2012 me would go to the future and, and smack me across the face for saying this, but I believe history will vindicate Ruben Amaro. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll be looking at him as a underappreciated GM genius in his time. Yeah, I don't know. Well, genius might be a little strong, but <laughs> okay. yeah, he got a bad rap. And uh, yeah, I guess my, my last couple losers were the Astros, who were another team that was just sort of that they, they sort of had the bizarro Nationals deadline where they didn't make a move, but the other team that they were, but the team that they were chasing did that coincided with getting swept over the weekend and losing three games in the standings. So they might look back on this and regret not making some sort of splashy move. And then there was the weird pirates salary dump, which I wrote about. I don't know if you have strong feelings about yeah that. can you can you lay it out because it's it's kind of a confusing exchange so this this actually took me i was i had my my head into writing the top half of this column when the details finally finally trickled down uh they trade so they traded francisco liriano who was really good for three or he was i mean he's been really good and really terrible on and off throughout his entire 10-year career and he was really good for three years with Pittsburgh, and he just can't throw strikes this season. So they shipped him off to Toronto in exchange for Drew Hutchison. And, you know, that looks like a pretty equitable uh, swap. Liriano's got a better track record of success, but he's a little older, um, a little more expensive. And so, you know, Hutchison is maybe a guy you throw at Ray Searage, the the Pirates' magical pitching coach, and, and he works his magic and turns into the next Jay Happ or, or the next Francisco Liriano, for that matter. Um, but then it came out that Toronto also got two non-trivial prospects, Harold Ramirez and Reese McGuire. And McGuire was a, a the former number 14 overall pick, I think in, in 2013 or 14. I forget which. But, you know, he's a, a really good defensive catcher who ought to be a major league starter. And essentially those guys got thrown in, you know, in terms of just two, two prospects in a Pirates trade. That's better than what they, that's way better than what they gave up or than what they got from Washington in exchange for Mark Melanson, essentially just to get the Blue Jays to eat $15 million worth of salary. And that's a little troubling because of the Pirates' recent history of just take of just feeling bare-bones teams and pocketing, you know, $15, $20 million a year of profits and not reinvesting it in the team. So I think it's it's important for teams with ownership – like the pirates for fans and the media to hold ownership accountable to to reinvest that money uh in payroll. Yeah, and the pirates did raise their payroll to some extent this season. They were I think at least out of the bottom 10 or so, not by much, but for them that was progress and it's yeah, probably a disconcerting sign for pirates fans who've had it hard enough with their constant wild card game exits yeah to see this and wonder whether it's a return to the battle days yeah and it's 
you know, not that they're, you know, not that they have to spend the luxury tax every year. You know, I'm not so naive to think that every team uh, is capable of doing that every year. But, you know, they they've got a they put together a really good team there with a bunch of players signed to below market contracts. And yet they've been doing stuff like this and and nickel and diamond Garrett Cole over uh, over his pre arb salary. And, you know, it's just it doesn't look good. And, you know, this is not the most egregious ownership abuse of of funds or whatever it's just it's annoying i think it's an annoyance more than an injustice at this point yeah and i think what you said earlier is right there really isn't a a team that we can pinpoint that made some massive mistake there's no one trade that is a just a no-brainer win for one side so with the losers we are kind of coming down yeah. against teams that just didn't do anything or didn't do enough as opposed to teams that did the wrong thing. And even the Mets with with Bruce, they didn't make the team worse. Right. And they didn't give up, you know, somebody they certainly didn't give up anybody as good as Michael Fulmer. So this is not a they didn't cripple the team. They just did something that doesn't make any sense, doesn't make them significantly better. Mm-hmm. And of course, there's the opportunity to make waiver moves for the next month or so. So some teams will continue to add. I, I guess if we had to, if we had to come up with the worst inactive teams, we've mentioned some of them already. The Astros, for one, contending teams really, not so much yeah. teams like the Phillies that just failed to accelerate their timetable. But you know, I guess you could look at Baltimore. The Orioles added Steve Pierce, who has been as good for the Rays as he was for Baltimore a while ago, but can't pitch, unfortunately. And the Orioles have a need in that rotation, maybe even more than the Rangers do. So I think Orioles fans would have liked to see someone patch that rotation. If you if you put Rich Hill on the Orioles, they would look a lot different. Yeah, today. it's a whole different. I, yeah. yeah, I would have talked about them before I talked about the Red Sox in this podcast, that's for yeah, sure. Right. Do you think Puig gets through waivers? I mean, it's possible. I know there were some reports that suggested that he would pass through, and I don't know that there's ever been any definitive study on the old change of scenery axiom, but he does seem like he uh, fits the the usual parameters for someone who would make a, a good candidate for that. Yeah. Maybe he'd wear out his welcome wherever he went next, but it seemed like starting fresh would not be the worst thing. I don't really think that uh, the change of scenery is the kind of thing that you can do large end research on just because yeah, right. the the very concept requires is specific to a specific person in a specific situation. Mm-hmm. But you know, what is he? I think Jay Jaffe said he had something like $17 million on his deal. Somebody at the bottom of the standings would, would claim him. And I guess it would be up to the Dodgers to to make a deal like there's no way he gets through all 30 teams yeah right i mean he's he's signed for just over 8 million next year just over 9 million the year after that and that is what teams pay for you know a one-win player at this point on the free agent market so it's very easy to imagine yasiel puig making some team that claimed him look brilliant next year when he goes back to being a star again or even just goes back to being an average player again he would be right. well worth that even now he's a you know about a one-win player right. so you know unless he's there's it's possible that he's doing more than a win's worth of damage in the clubhouse but he's still only what 26 and or not even 26 he no. turns 26 in december yeah i would still expect to to see good puig again whether it's in la or not i'd be surprised if we never see that guy again 
Anyone else? I guess, you know, the, the Marlins earned some criticism for the, the Kashner trade, which seemed like not the wisest. It, it looked worse in the aftermath because of the pitcher who immediately got hurt. Colin Ray, yeah. Yeah. But, you know, that, that seemed like a, a case where the Padres took advantage of Kashner having a, a string of good starts right before the deadline when there just wasn't much else out there. And the Marlins gave up Cosart for him and gave up Carter Caps and a pretty good prospect, Naylor, who was on the top 100 list somewhere toward the bottom. So that seemed like a, a move that maybe didn't move the needle all that much and, and cost them some talent. I know that, you know, a lot of people kind of just declare the Marlins a winner if they just don't do something awful. <laughs> I tell you what, like they might have won that trade just by offloading Cozart and Naylor. Yeah. And, you know, Cozart's kind of got a reputation as a... Yes. He's got a reputation, and, and Josh Naylor stabbed one of his teammates this year. There was so, <laughs> you know, regardless of the high draft pick that they spent on him, maybe, you know, Colin Ray getting hurt is what it is, but the, the Marlins might all be happier and live longer if uh, <laughs> if they get rid of those guys. Yeah, well, we're all watching the night of. People get stabbed by accident yeah, sometimes. I, it's, it happens. We've hit pretty much everyone. I mean, there are teams that, you know, Toronto, Boston, Detroit, teams that are still in it to varying degrees, very much so in Toronto's and Boston's cases, and didn't do a whole lot. Yeah, Toronto's interesting. They're yeah. they're in action, particularly compared to last year. Maybe they just, they tapped out after after that big deadline last season, but mm-hmm. that's a team that I think could have, could have benefited from a, a big move and yeah, you know, they're still only half a game back, so they might be good enough anyway, but you know, they could have made a big move and, and pulled away again. Yeah, it's funny, right? It, it might just be that they raised the system to the ground last year, but yeah, it's, true. it's also that Mark Shapiro is there now, and when Mark Shapiro was in Cleveland, the Indians had a reputation for not making many moves, for kind of holding on to their prospects and playing it safe, and now the Indians were going for it and the Blue Jays were playing it conservative so maybe you can tie it to him or maybe they just didn't have the the guys to deal so I guess we have covered just about everything here it was not the the most earth-shaking deadline ever I think last year's deadline according to some research I did at Grantland was the the most active deadline ever in terms of the the quality of players traded, not just the that might be true, yeah, yeah, not just the the quantity of guys who were moved on that day, you know, Price and Tulo and everyone, but just the the sheer depth of the the class. We knew that this year's deadline wasn't going to be anything like that. There was always the the shot that there would be some kind of you know Chris Sale move that came together at the last second or or something that no one foresaw, but. In the end, the the guys who got traded were pretty much exactly the guys that we thought were going to get traded. Yeah, I think, you know, what do you think? There were at least four guys. You know, if Lucor is the best player who got traded at this deadline, and last year they moved Price, Cueto, Hamels, Tulowitzki, I think all of them are better players than, than Lucroy. Am I missing anybody? Tulo's somewhat diminished, but, but yeah. yes. I mean, based on track record and reputation, all those guys were definitely above Lucroy, and and there were a bunch of them. It was busy. Apparently, yeah. MLB had a, a stat out: eighteen trades today, the most on deadline day since nineteen ninety five. Interesting. So, yeah, yeah. A lot of them were not super significant, but right. but yes, there was a lot of news. There was a lot of yeah. refreshing of MLB trade rumors, which 
never crashed for me on no it didn't crash for me either very impressive the uh underrated subplot of uh today for me was watching sean foreman uh who runs baseball reference tweet about how many page views he's getting per second (laughs) and i imagine crossing his fingers and praying his server doesn't go down i think the highest number i saw was was 75 page views a second which i don't know if that's a lot or not but it's like a lot All right, so we've covered it all. That's the deadline. I'll be back with another show on Thursday. Thank you for listening.